listening to the Bible 126 show. Hi, I'm Ron Matson, and welcome to Learn the Bible in 24 Hours with Dr. Chuck Missler. Chuck will be taking you through some interesting oversights of the Bible and showing you some amazing facts. For more information on how you can join this group, click here. Well, this is hour 16 of Learn the Bible in 24 Hours the final week of Christ's ministry on earth. A tough session for just the opposite of the usual reasons. Many sessions we've had are very difficult to somehow summarize so many different things within the one hour. Book of Genesis there and whatever. This is difficult in a different sense. We're going to just talk about one week and our problem, our frustration will be that we can't possibly probe the depth of this one week. It has significance and meaning that we will spend an eternity trying to understand. But having said all that, let's take, let's take a look at what we can glean from this final week. And uh, the, it is, I call this week the agony of love. Six hours that he spent uh, on our behalf to free us from eternity. Well, one of the first questions that people get concerned about, was it Friday or was it Wednesday? And let me say right up front, there are many good scholars that will support a Friday crucifixion. That is the traditional view of the church. Uh, I can remember vividly, uh, I was a co-host on a, a, a worldwide television broadcast and uh, uh, we had a, a, as our guest, the guest that was scheduled at that time was uh, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery, the famous apologist. And my associate host was get, got in a discussion with him about where he was explaining how you get three days and three nights between Friday and Sunday. And John Warwick Montgomery, this very august apologist, was explaining, defending the Friday thing. When he finished, I turned to the co-host and explained. I says, you need to understand that John is also an attorney, and that's the way they bill. And uh, Dr. Montgomery almost fell off the couch laughing because he knew I was pulling his leg. Uh, I knew a lot about him because he was such a close friend with uh, Walter Martin, and I, Walter and I were very close. But, but um, indeed, uh, eminent scholar, and he would defend a Friday. But they, they all try to argue various ways that a partial day counts as a day, and that's how they get the three days from Friday. To And I, I'm saying that because... Uh, there are people that still, it's not just a church tradition, there are people that will try to support that. But there are three reasons why I don't think that is correct from the Scripture. We mentioned last time that he went from Jericho to Bethany six days before Passover, which means, in effect, that that Passover could not be on a Friday. Because you wouldn't be, six days before that would be a Shabbat, and that's from Jericho to Bethany is more than a Sabbath day's journey. And as an observant Jew, he would not violate that uh, Shabbat. There's another verse, and that is the morning we call Easter morning, when the girls were going to the tomb with their spices and things. It says, after the Sabbaths were passed. Your English Bible may or may not notice this, but in the Greek it's very clear, it's plural. The Sabbaths were passed that Sunday morning, which means there was more than one Sabbath. 
on the Jewish calendar, there are 52 Shabbats, that is a, what we call Saturdays. There are also seven high Sabbaths in addition, one of which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the day after Passover. Passover itself is not considered a Sabbath, but the day after is in, 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 the, in the formal reckoning. So the fact that Sunday morning there was more than one Sabbath passed means that not only Saturday had passed, but either Thursday or Friday was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. When the Sabbaths were passed, they were free to go to the, to the thing. So that again is a refutation of a Friday crucifixion. And the one that's also the third thing is Jesus himself said, as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And the way that's expressed seems to reject it being simply idiomatical. Three days and three nights is, is clearly, uh, you can't shoehorn that in between Friday evening and Sunday morning. It doesn't work so much as you might try. So we hold, doesn't mean we're right, I just want you to know where we're coming from as we go through some of these other discussions. Um, so six days before Passover we came to Bethany in John chapter 12 and uh, more than a Sabbath day's journey from Jericho and three days and three nights in the heart of the earth in Matthew 12 verse 40. Okay, so those are three uh, reasons. So Friday we see him at Bethany from, uh, from John 12. Saturday we have the triumphal entry by this reckoning. And there's, understand, there's different scholars will have slightly different resting. We're lean, we've leaned heavily on the very interesting work by Rister Salata that's been finally translated into English, and it's a very excellent reconciliation of much of this. Uh, Sunday is when the fig tree is cursed and so forth. Uh, Monday is when the conspirators counsel together. And I want to point out something to you. The plan by the conspirators expressly was not to take Jesus on a holiday because they feared the Romans. The Romans almost didn't care what you do as long as you did it orderly. They, the thing, their report card to Caesar gets punched by whether or not there's an insurrection. So the Romans were very tight in keeping things peaceful. They couldn't care less about the other controversies. The conspirators wanted to take Jesus on a non-holiday. That was the plan. And uh, I think it's very, very fascinating that Jesus controlled all the details. And uh, at the upper room, it's Jesus that announces that someone's going to betray him. So you have to understand the spot that put Judas in. He wasn't going to do it that night. It's Passover the next day. You've got to be kidding. But Jesus announces that someone's going to be, who's going to betray him? The one that dips with me in the sod. He turns to Judas and says, what you do, do quickly. Who's calling the shots here? Jesus is. I think that's fascinating. Judas has to fish or cut bait. He's got to do it that night or the word's out. So he splits. He's got to find his co-conspirators. They've got to make arrangements. They've got to get an appointment with Pilate early in the morning. There's a whole bunch of things. That's why they're in Gethsemane so long. It took them that long to get their act together. Jesus is calling the shots, interestingly enough. And of course we have the Last Supper, which is, and of course the Passover line was between the evenings. And that's, so it's, it's, uh, it starts that, uh, at the sundown, it goes to sundown the next day, and he'll be crucified before sundown the next day. And uh, so there we have it. And uh, it fascinates me that uh, it uh, uh, is controlled by Jesus Christ. That, that put, that, this, this chronology would uh, uh, support a Wednesday crucifixion, as we see when you put John 19 and uh, 
uh, Mark 15 and Luke 23 together, that seems to be the, the profile, if you will. And uh, then, of course, we have the next day is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as specified in, in Leviticus 23. And then Friday is when the women prepare the spices and so forth. And uh, Saturday, they in rest. They, they, this is, and it's after the Sabbaths were passed in Matthew 28, verse 1. is a very key verse. Check it in the Greek. You'll discover it's plural. And that's important uh, to get an insight here. And of course, Sunday morning, they discover he's risen. Now, there's some scholars that would argue that he actually was resurrected that night, before, you know, before, obviously before sunrise. And uh, we get squ- that's splitting hairs in my view. The net of it is, is that uh, clearly Sunday morning, the women discover, it's interesting, the women discover that he has risen. And the apostles learn about it subsequently. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But that's, that's a quick profile. That's one of, of the candidate uh, reckonings of the final week, the so-called Passion Week of Jesus Christ. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about the triumphal entry then. This is by way of review from our excursions into this area when we were in Daniel chapter 9. We have, of course, the prophecy that Jesus deliberately arranged to fulfill. In Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, riding upon an ass and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. This is recorded in all four Gospels. And uh, they're to take everyone a lamb. It's interesting that the Passover is technically not a Levitical feast. It was at, in the home, not in the temple. Made ju- blessed by the temple, of course. I don't want to make too much of that. But Jesus deliberately arranges to fulfill this. It's the only day in the Gospels that Jesus allowed himself to be proclaimed as a king. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. Unto who? Unto Jerusalem. He's presenting himself to Jerusalem as a king. Formally very real. And it's interesting when you get to Luke 19... The crowd is singing Psalm 118, saying, Blessed is the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. All of us, how many of you have heard the psalm, this is the day which the Lord hath made, we shall rejoice and be glad in it? See, we apply that to any day, but that's not what Psalm, that's from Psalm 118. What it's really alluding to is this day, the day that the Messiah presents himself as a king. That's, that's what's really in view in Psalm 118. But that's what they're singing. And uh, you and I miss the point. Whenever we run the risk of not understanding that the Pharisees come to rescue, some of the Pharisees from among the multitude sent them, Master, rebuke thy disciples. Why? What's wrong with singing that song? You and I, would, as Gentiles especially, would miss that. But the Pharisees understood that the crowd singing that psalm are proclaiming him the Messiah. And they assume he doesn't want his disciples blaspheming. Well, he never said he was God. Gee, the Pharisees thought so. See, because the, the significance of this is he's declaring himself the Messiah, and they understood that is blasphemy. And he's, they're assuming that he doesn't want, in the enthusiasm of the moment, his disciples to blaspheme. Master, rebuke your disciples. It's fascinating to see his very diplomatic reply. He says, He answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. So I love that. And I usually admonish our. our the people on our tours as they walk down from over that very road, which we do from Mount of Olives down, to pick up a few rocks, put them in your pocket, take it back home, and mount them on a plaque. And people ask, what's that? In your living room or den? You know, that's one of the stones that didn't cry out. And you can give them the whole story of Daniel 9 and, and uh, Luke 19 and so forth. And of course, we just by way of review, you may recall in, in that Gabriel gave Daniel a four-verse prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. 
Gabriel said, from the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem to the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah the King, would be, in effect, 173,880 days. This is all by way of review. We know the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem was the decree of Artaxerxes Longimanus, which is dated March 14th of 445 B.C. And of course the big enigma is, when did Jesus allow himself to be proclaimed as king? And that's what we're watching here in Luke 19. And uh, as I indicated that, that before the previous session, Christ's ministry began in the fall of 28 A.D. Why? Because Tiberius was appointed in 14 A.D. and it was in the, four, it was in the 15th year of Tiberius. In other words, 14 years later. So it's 14 plus 14 is 28. So it's in A.D. 28 that the ministry began. It's on the fourth Passover that this is all occurring. And uh, so that is datable. What's interesting about that date, if you do the arithmetic, you discover several things. That All of this is written, by the way, in the Septuagint translation, which was codified in 270 B.C., three centuries before the Gospel period. And if you go through, and, and, and 300 years before all this. And if you go through the arithmetic, you'll discover that between those dates occur, by the time you go through the leap year and all the rest of this stuff, is 173,880 days. And all of this is documented in Sir Robert Anderson's classic work in 1894 called The Coming Prince. I encourage you to take a look at that. But it's interesting, as Jesus riding this donkey to Jerusalem, when he comes near, comes up over the brow of the hill of Mount of Olives and he sees the city, what does he do? He wept over it. He knew what was coming. He said, if thou hadst known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong to thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. This is this thy day. This thy, he held them accountable to understand Daniel 9. He expected them to understand that this is the day they were supposed to be expecting him. And of course, he also knew that four days from now he would be, that the same crowd would be yelling, crucify him. But he goes on in Luke 19. He says, For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. He's talking to Jerusalem. And we all know from history, 38 years later, the Roman legions, 5th, 10th, 12th, and 15th Roman legions, laid siege to Jerusalem for about nine months, slaughtered over a million people. Another half million died from the pestilence and what followed. And they literally, they had planned to take the temple as a trophy, but a torch went through one window, started to fire, the wood burned, the gold melted. Titus had to instruct his troops to take it apart stone by stone to recover the gold. And that was literally true. They did not leave in thee one stone left upon another. Question. The fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, one of the biggest milestones, most terrifying milestones in Jewish history. Over a million and a half people, men, women, and children killed. Why? Why was Jerusalem destroyed in 70 AD? There are a lot of good answers to that. Let's look at the answer Jesus gave. Why was this going to happen? Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. That just gives me chills. Jesus held them accountable to know the prophecies of Daniel 9. And this is the same prophecy that Jesus tells his four disciples in Matthew 24 to understand. Matthew 24, 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, that's an allusion to that same passage. Thou knewest not the time of visit visitation. Well, after those incidents of, gee, what's coming next? Well, after those three score and two weeks, shall the Messiah be karat, executed. But not for himself. For whom? You and me. And the people of the princes shall come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. 
And we know who destroyed the city sanctuary is the Roman army. So in some sense, they're the people of what? The prince that shall come. That's a title of a leader yet to show up. And at the end thereof there shall be a flood or a diaspora, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Karat, to cut off, to eliminate, to kill, to execute. The Old Testament has a prophecy in Daniel 9 verse 26 that the Messiah will be killed, be executed. That shocks many Jewish scholars. It's in the Old Testament. It's in their words. Indeed he was. If you want a candidate for the Messiah of Israel, find someone that was killed just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. We've got a good candidate in mind. <laughs> Princess shall come. That's, a, that's one of 33 titles in the Old Testament of this world leader yet to show up. He has 13 titles in the New Testament. So obviously the 69 weeks were fulfilled to the very day. You and I are dwelling in that interval of verse 26. After the 69, but the 70th week has not started yet, but we know from a lot of indicators that it's not far away. This last seven-year period is about to start on the, on the relatively near horizon. In that interval we have the crucifixion and we have the destruction of the temple. That takes us 38 years there, but we know it's actually lasted for 2,000 or so. This interval, by the way, is also implied in a lot of different scriptures. They're in your notes for the for Daniel 9 review. It's defined for you that they're blinded from the, from the missing that from the day that Jesus made that declaration, verse 42 of, Daniel, of, of Luke 19, until the Romans 11, so Paul tells us, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That's in the interval. When the fullness of the Gentiles come in, the rapture of the church, that's going to close that interval. And we'll be getting into the 70th week of Daniel. This interval is the period of the church, an era that was kept secret in the Old Testament according to Jesus' own remark in Matthew 13 and is revealed to us by Paul in Ephesians 3. Critical study of eschatology. The church was born at Pentecost and the prerequisites to the church was the atonement and the resurrection and the ascension. The spiritual gifts are only given after the ascension. Christ is taken out so the Comforter can come in in his, in his unique way uh, during this period. Okay, the final week. Let's take now, uh, take a look at the Last Supper in detail. Interesting time. It was not to be on a feast day according to Matthew 26, 5. That was the instruction. But Jesus, told, after announcing it's going to happen in public, in, in, in the uh, meeting, he turns to do what thou doest, do quickly, and Judas has to split and somehow figure out what he's going to do here. Then we're in the Garden of Eden. It's interesting when you get to the Garden of Eden. When you get to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're praying there, and these soldiers show up, Jesus advances to them. I love this. He, if you look closely at the narrative, he's <laughs> running the show. He advances to them. So who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. And they fall, they're, they're, they're smashed against the wall. They're, they're, they're shook by that declaration. Because I believe he's making a very key theological statement. He doesn't, he doesn't say, I'm the guy you're looking for. He says, I am. He's using his key title there. He, he says that seven times in the Gospel of John. Then he starts giving orders. If I'm the one you're seeking, let these go their way. Who's calling the shots here? Not the soldiers. Jesus is. Understand, all the way through, he's in charge. He's controlling the timing. Why? Because there are hundreds of specifications that have been and will be fulfilled in the next few hours. Every detail has been laid down in advance centuries before. The crucifixion is not a tragedy, it's an achievement. It's what he came to do. 
But notice who's in charge. Jesus Christ is in charge. There are six trials that will occur between his arrest and the crucifixion. There are three Jewish trials before Annas, before Caiaphas, and then before the Sanhedrin. And those are obviously recorded in the Scripture. And then there are Roman trials. He's put before Pilate. When Pilate hears the word Galilee, aha, Herod's in town. It's his problem. So he sends him over to Herod. Herod says, no way. Back to Pilate. So (laughs) these administrators are trying to wash their hands of this problem. Six trials. Every one of them, every detail of every trial is illegal. It's illegal. Interesting. The illegalities. The binding of a prisoner before he was condemned was illegal. He's bound. That's illegal. The judges participated in the arrest of the accused. That was illegal. No legal transactions, including a trial, could be conducted at night. This is a kangaroo kangaroo court, as we would call it, going on in the middle of the night. While an acquittal could be pronounced the same day, any other verdict required a majority of two and had to come on a subsequent day. That was in the law. That was the law. They didn't obey any of this. No prisoner could be convicted on his own evidence. And of course, that's the only evidence he had. That's what finally does it. When the high priest finally said, I adjure thee, they couldn't, get the, they couldn't get the witnesses to agree. I adjure thee by the living God, tell us who you are. Well, he's under oath now. That's the only time he makes a statement. Is what he's under oath. Jesus, you know, you said it, buddy. Next time you see me, I'm coming and, and you, you don't say it. So it's interesting. No prisoner can be convicted on his own evidence. That evidence convicted him. And incidentally, the evidence that convicted him was his claim that he was the creator. That's staggering. It was the duty of the judge, by the way, to see that the interest of the accused was fully protected. You've got to be kidding. This is, a, this is a railroad job, as we might call it. The use of violence during the trial was apparently unopposed by the judges. They slapped him around. The judges sought false witnesses against Jesus. The judges sought these false witnesses, tried to get them to agree. They couldn't agree. In a Jewish court, the accused was to be assumed innocent until proved guilty by two or more witnesses. These ideas, by the way, you notice, have their roots biblically. They're they're cherished rights that we try, clumsily perhaps, we try to uh, imbue in our uh, 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 jurisprudence, our legal system. But in any case, they're certainly violated here. No witness was ever called for the defense, (laughs) except his own self-incriminating in their mind. By the way, the court lacked the civil authority to condemn a man to death. That's why they had to make these arrangements to see Pilate. And seeing Pilate took special arrangements. They couldn't just go see Pilate. I mean, he's the personal representative of the ruler of the world. He happens to be in town. But um, they have to go to him to get done what they want to get done. It was illegal to conduct a session of the court on a feast day. And it's certainly a feast day. It's, you know, it's Passover, for crying out loud. The sentence is finally passed in the palace of the high priest, but the law demanded that it be pronounced in the temple in the hall of hewn stone. They didn't do that. It was in, his, it was in, the, palace, in the high priest's own palace. And also the high priest tears his garment. That was against the law. He was never permitted to tear his official robe. That's in Leviticus 21 verse 10. And by the way, without his priestly robe, he couldn't have put Christ under oath. 
So you, gotta, you can't have it both ways. If he put him under oath, he must have had his priestly robe, or he couldn't do that. If he has his priestly robe, he wasn't supposed to tear it. There is a habit of tearing a robe under certain things, but he's, he wasn't allowed to. That was against the law. Let's talk about Pilate. Pilate tried hard to get out of this. I'm, I feel very sympathetic to Pilate's dilemma, understanding the, 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 uh, the pressures on an administrator. Jesus Christ was pronounced innocent by the personal representative of the ruler of the world. I find no fault in this man, he declares to the crowd. But he tries to get out from under this. He passes it off to Herod. And Herod's a pretty slippery character too. He won't, he passes, he, then he tries to pass it off to the crowd. Every year we let a prisoner go and you know, he, he thought surely they would, they got this murderer that's a rival here. Certainly they're going to take this guy that there's so many, you know, apparently follow him. He tries to pass her off the crowd, but they've been bribed and, and, and managed by the experts. Prisoner of choice is released. You want Barabbas or your king? Kind of, kind of interesting that he, he, he declares him a king. Well, you know the story. Barabbas is an interesting story. You need to understand Barabbas. We don't do much studying of Barabbas here. Understand, he stood under the righteous condemnation of the law. He did not declare any basis of being innocent. He's guilty. He knows he is. He knew that the one that was about to take his cross and take his place was innocent. Barabbas knew he was himself guilty. He knew this guy that was being accused that was going to take his place for freedom was innocent. He knew that. He knew that Jesus Christ was for him a substitute. From his point of view, Christ was substituted into his shoes. Otherwise he would have been freed, right? No. I mean, he would have been condemned, but because they picked him, he's freed and Christ is condemned. They switch places in a sense, okay? And he knew that he had done nothing to merit going free while another took his place. So get the, I want you to understand Barabbas' situation here. They're changing places. The murderer's bonds, his curse, his disgrace, and his mortal agony, that's Barabbas', were transferred to the righteous Jesus. While the liberty the innocence, the safety and the well-being of the Nazarene became the lot of the murderer. You understand how they switch places? Barabbas is installed in all the rights and privileges of Jesus Christ while the latter ends up on all the infamy and horror of the rebel's position. The delinquent's guilt and cross became the lot of the just one and all the civil rights and immunities of the latter were property of the delinquent. Where are you and I? We are in Barabbas' shoes. We're not innocent. We know we're guilty. We have nothing to justify anything but the punishment that we deserve. Jesus is innocent. And we are switching places. We gain him, his situation, and he endures ours. That's what's going on here. Barabbas is more than just a bystander here. He's a representative, you and I. Okay, so we get to the crucifixion itself. And thanks to Mel Gibson's work, many people are critical of some of its, some of its uh, colorful overtones, but at the same time it's an incredible piece of work to which we're indebted. Now to refresh your memory from Genesis chapter 22, you may recall that the Mount, of Olives, uh, that the, uh, Mount Moriah is a ridge system starting at Salem or Ophel near the base, about 600 meters above sea level. You get up to the temple area, which is a, th- is, is a saddleback, the thrashing floor of Aruna. But the ridge continues up, uphill. 
The bedrock goes up till 777 meters above sea level, a place called Golgotha. And uh, the place that Abraham offered Isaac, I believe, is the exact spot that, the, that, G, that another father offered his son as an offering for sin. There's a Jewish tradition that Abram offered Isaac at the Temple Mount, but that's just a Jewish tradition. It doesn't seem to conform to either the topography or the Scripture. It's at Golgotha that I believe Abram offered Isaac, and it's at Golgotha that Jesus Christ is offered on our behalf. Old Testament prophecies. We went through a lot of these in the previous session about being born of David's family, born of a virgin, born of Bethlehem, and, and live in Galilee, raised in Nazareth, announced by Elijah like Harold, John the Baptist, the massacre of Bethlehem's children, the jubilee to the world, the mission that included the Gentiles, his healing ministry and teaching through parables, all that we covered cover in the last session. Now we have these whole series of these just in this week. The triumphal entry is because to be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. He'd be, uh, be like a smitten shepherd, his, his flock being scattered. He'd be given vinegar and gall, the psalmist tells us. They would cast lots for his garments. The very vocabulary is quoted. It's like it's following a script from Psalm 22. His side would be pierced. Not a bone would be broken. That was a specification in Exodus for the Passover lamb. It's also in Numbers 9 and Psalm 34. And it was also fulfilled by Jesus Christ. A Roman soldier was ordered to break the legs. And this guy refused his orders. He got to Jesus Christ and threw up a spear in his side instead. Did he know he was fulfilling prophecy? I don't think so. Was he fulfilling prophecy? Absolutely. Absolutely. He'd die among malefactors, and indeed he did. His dying words were foretold. He would be buried by a rich man, and he'd rise on the third. All this stuff is written in the, in the Tanakh, the Old Testament. And res- his resurrection would be followed by the destruction of Jerusalem. That's in Daniel 9, 11, and also in, in 12. And of course, Jesus amplifies that also. He was crucified on a cross of wood. Yet he made the hill on which it stood. What held him to that cross? It wasn't the nails. Here's the creator hanging there. He could have at any time said, enough already, I'm out of here. No nails could hold him if he didn't want them to. What held him to that cross is His love for you and me. Staggering, staggering thing. It was His love for you and me. My friend uh, Joe Foch from Philadelphia, we were together in in, in Yorkshire, England, and, and Joe gave a message that he doesn't give very frequently. There was an incident in his life where his son, one of his sons, was seriously in need of emergency care in the hospital. When he got to the hospital, they got a lot of harassment by filling out forms. and <laughs> He admits his witness wasn't too good. As he explained to them, if they don't get take care of him, they're going to need emergency care. <laughs> anyway, as he describes the agony of a father in his anxiety over his son. He pointed out something that few of us think about, probably. We focus on the agony of Jesus Christ hanging on that cross as so 
dramatized, at least the physical aspects are dramatized in the movie. Can you imagine the grief of the father as he watches them spit on his son and beat him and insult him? The forbearance of the father is astonishing to reflect on in this whole scenario. Imagine a father having to endure that being done to his son, yet knowing if he interferes, he'll blow the mission. An interesting thing occurs when Pilate is there in John 19. It says Pilate wrote a title, or titlon is what it actually and put it on the cross. I'm interested in this. It wasn't Pilate's servant or his assistant. Pilate personally, apparently, put this title on the cross. And notice what Pilate said. The writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And then read, this title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Now that, first of all, intrigues me that Pilate is fluent in those three languages. It's written in Hebrew because he's on duty in Judea. So he learned to speak and write Hebrew, apparently. He's also fluent in Greek, as everyone was in that world, because that was the standard commercial language. He's also, obviously, competent in Latin, because that was the official language of the Roman Empire. As the years go by, Latin will begin to you know, supplant Greek in many places, but still... What's interesting, Pilate wrote this personally. I think this is interesting for a number of reasons. Let me show you a surprising one. When you and I miss the point, there again the priests and the Pharisees come to our rescue. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, write not the king of the Jews, but that he said I am the king of the Jews. Notice they're willing to say if he says I am the king of the Jews, they're happy with that. That's surprising, isn't it? What are they upset about? What's the difference? Whatever the difference is, Pilate did what he did deliberately. He answered, what I have written, I have written. He's not about to budge. Now you and I, as we watch this, can't figure out what's the difference. I'll show you the difference. Here's what Pilate wrote. He wrote it in Hebrew, right? Remember, Hebrew goes from right to left, right? He wrote... uh, Yeshua Hanatzerai Vemelech Yehudin. That in the Hebrew will be four words with four initial letters. The initial letters of those four words is a yot, a he, a vav, and a he. The unpronounceable name of God. Now, well, who yeah, was right? Now, you could conclude from this that Pilate is authenticating Jesus Christ's deity here. I might not go that far. But clearly he knew that it was the habit of the Jewish leadership. They love acrostics. Many of the Psalms are acrostic. The, the, the Jewish leadership loved word games. They always took great stock in the first, you know, in what they call acrostics. Pilate is deliberately writing this as an acrostic of the of, of Yahuwah, uh, uh, as the Jews might say, or Yehovah, or Yahweh, or however you want to pronounce it. It's the unpronounceable name of God. Either he was just doing this to tweak them, 
probably upset that these guys put him in this spot of having to be entangled in this controversy. Or maybe, just possibly, he may have had insights that go beyond what we generally accredit to him. He was profoundly impressed the way Jesus conducted himself personally. Jesus pointed out to him, you have no power of me unless God gave it to you. I mean, he, his, his, that whole interview with Jesus, out of which he brings Jesus out to the crowd and says, I find no fault in this man. What a statement! How simple it would have been for him to say, fine, you know, kill this imposter or whatever. No. I find no fault. He wanted him off. Now his wife was telling him in dreams, of, hey, you're dealing with something here that's bigger than you think it is. Now there's another insight that comes forth, and I'll show you that too. I, 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 it would not surpri- I have no evidence of this. There may be documentation to the contrary of what I'm about to tell you. But I personally will not be surprised if when I get to heaven I meet Pilate. I wouldn't be surprised that the ordeal of that day, when coupled with subsequent reflection, and maybe other reports he hears, would cause him to suspect that Jesus Christ really is who he claimed to be. And if that's true, it's possible. I don't know if I have any evidence that he might have come to faith. It wouldn't surprise me if we meet him there. I feel very much for Pilate because I understand the, having been in those kinds of predicaments, someone that's in charge and has administrative responsibilities often gets torn with a decision he has to make. And he was in a tough spot. And he's there, his job from his boss was to keep the peace. And he tried hard to try to do that and couldn't. Now there is an unrecorded conversation with Pilate that I want to touch on. And uh, as you may know, Joseph of Arimathea comes to Pilate the next day to beg the, or that evening actually, to beg the body of, of, of Jesus Christ. That tells you a great deal about Joseph of Arimathea. We do know from a lot of indications he was a very powerful person, very rich, one of the mo- most powerful guys in the earth. In fact, the very fact that he can approach Pilate tells you he had stature. What's even more astonishing, Joseph was in hiding. Uh, the, the scripture says that he was, the way it's recorded in your Bible, he was secretly a follower of Jesus. That's a mistranslation. The Greek word there, if you change one letter, you have to change one letter to make it you know, a, a, an adverb. In the sentence, in the Greek, it's an adjective. It should be translated, he was secreted as a disciple of Christ. Meaning he was in hiding. He wasn't just secretly, he was undercover. He had to hide because they were going to try to kill him. He had defended Jesus before the Sanhedrin on a previous occasion. That's another reason why Pilate was probably startled that he shows up. But he certainly has access to Pilate and he begs the body. It tells you a second thing. about Joseph Arimathea legally apparently had to be the next of kin. It was Roman law and maybe Hebrew law that the next of kin had the responsibility of disposing of a body, even of a criminal. No one, not, not, not just anyone could go and get the body. It had to be the, next, the one rep- responsible. And Joseph Arimathea apparently was the next of kin. So he had personal access to the procurator and he was the next of kin. Pilate was surprised. Now what you don't read in the scripture, but I have it on good authority, what Pilate said to Joseph Arimathea, I don't understand. You've got this brand new tomb for your family and you're going to give it to this criminal? And Joe says, oy vey, it's just for the weekend. (laughs) I'm indebted to Chuck Smith for that apocryphal story. I have it on good authority because Chuck wouldn't say so it wasn't true. Um, So it's just for the weekend. It's just a little toss away for you. But what what, uh, did happen the next morning 
is the, uh, the, um, Pharise- the scribes and Pharisees came to him. Chief priests came to him and said, Sir, speaking to Pilate, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. You know, it's interesting, the disciples didn't get it. Jesus told them several times on the third day I'm going to rise from it. They, it didn't register. Um, the only people that understood it were his enemies. They, knew, they were expecting him to rise the third day. And also some women. They understood. The disciples didn't get it until later. Anyway, they, they say after three days, he, they're, they're, that was the boast that they were afraid of. He said, command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. I think that's an interesting mark. They're admitting that it was a mistake, but they did so far. See, they didn't plan to do it on the holiday, but it all went, from their point of view, pretty sour. And I love Pilate's response. Notice what he says. Pilate said to him, you have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. I love that phrasing. Do you hear? Do you hear in his words a certain cynicism? I don't think Pilate was surprised when, he just, when his own soldiers come and say, "By the way, he's gone." I mean, he, you know, uh, I think that's a, a hint. Pilate was. Pilate, I suspect, was not surprised with the resurrection. You have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. You know, I dare you, so to speak, almost. You hear it in there. A taunt, if you will. You have your way. Make it as sure as you can. Well, okay. So we get to this incredible day. He is risen. He is risen. And uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The most important validation in the history of the universe. Now, just to review a little bit, you may recall when we were in Genesis, the ark came to rest on the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, the mountain of Zavarat. That's when the new beginning starts under Noah, remember, in, Acts, I mean in Genesis chapter 8. Why did the Holy Spirit give you that detail? I mentioned then at, the, at that time, when you're normally, if you're a normal, normal well-adjusted person, the ark rests in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat, you read on. But if you're into one of my Bible studies, you are no longer qualified as a normal, well-adjusted human being. You remember that I made this ridiculous remark that every detail in the Scripture is there deliberately by design. Why did the Holy Spirit want you to know that the ark came to rest on the 17th day of the seventh month? I mean, why is that important? Well, as you know, the Jews have two calendars. The civil calendar is Tishri in the fall, Rosh Hashanah, the the new year. It's typically in our September time period, roughly. The religious year is in, starts in the spring because of Exodus 12. When God ordains the Passover, He says to Moses, this month, that is the month of Nisan, shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. And that means the Jews have two calendars. The Genesis calendar, the old calendar, is the one they celebrate in a civil sense. Rosh Hashanah is in Tishri in the fall, first month. The seventh month is to them Nisan. But since the Exodus... Since the Passover is ordained, the, the religious year starts with Nisan and it rolls around so that Tishri is the seventh month of the religious year. Do you get the picture? Okay. So here's the situation. He's crucified on the 14th of Nisan. He's in the grave how long? Three days. That means his resurrection occurs on the 17th of Nisan. Nisan being the seventh month of the Genesis calendar. So God's new beginning on the planet Earth for Noah was on the anniversary in advance, in anticipation, 
of our new beginning in Jesus Christ. I think that's significant. I think it's fascinating. It demonstrates God seems to love to deal in very precise ways. I never use the word approximate and God in the same sentence. Well, there are a lot of appearances after the resurrection. Mary Magdalene sees him first, early Sunday morning. I'll come back to that one. Other women that morning. Um, two on the Emmaus Road that afternoon. We talked about that briefly. Peter sees him sometime that day. The eleven see him that night, but without Thomas. A week later, actually eight days later, the eleven see him with Thomas, and we have that famous confrontation. Then the seven are up in Galilee in John 21, and there's a breakfast there that I want to talk about before we're through. And then the eleven see him again in Galilee. Then there's 500 that see him in Galilee, and what's interesting to understand is many of those 500 are present in the church at Corinth when Paul is writing his letter to the Corinthians. He makes reference to them in his first Corinthian letter. One of the things, how many of you would buy the idea, if I tried to sell it to you, that John F. Kennedy was killed in Dealey Plaza in 1963 with a bow and arrow? You laugh, of course, because you know I could not fly that story. Why couldn't I fly that story? Too many eyewitnesses here. Too many of you have first-hand experience to the contrary. And that's exactly the argument that Paul makes in his Corinthian letter. He's talking to people who were up in Galilee that witnessed his post-resurrection appearances. And of course, James is the, 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 there are two Jameses at the cross. The third James was Christ's brother. He, he believes in him after the resurrection. And that's also alluded to there in, in, in 1 Corinthians. And then of course, Luke had, then there's the final appearance and ascension recorded in uh, Luke 24 and following in the book of Acts and so on. And then there's another appearance that we often overlook, and that's to Paul on the Damascus Road. But, you know, all of us have uh, things in the Bible that bother us. People have difficulties with various things. And I want to share with you a difficulty that I have. It's been bothering me for years. And let me just be candid to you. What really bothers me is I can't help but notice that it seems that after his resurrection people seem to have difficulty recognizing him. It's never quite overt and yet it just lurks behind these encounters. Um, The encounter with with Mary in the garden in in the interest of I won't try to put all the scripture on we'll just recall it. She goes there in the garden and uh, she stoops down, looks in there, and he's gone. And she's crying. And she hears a voice. Who are you looking for? I'm looking for my Lord. Where have they laid him? And she turns and she thinks the person she's talking to is the gardener. Right? Remember that? And she says, tell me where have you laid him? And so forth. And he says to her, Mary, in Aramaic. And she says, Rabboni and Master. She apparently doesn't recognize him when she said, maybe it's because she's got tears in her eyes. But she was not a, you know, a, a casual acquaintance. This is Mary Magdalene. She loved him. And um, it isn't until she hears that familiar voice that she puts it together and realizes it's Jesus. That bothers me. Something doesn't quite compute there in my mind. That afternoon, two disciples 
are on their way to Emmaus. That's about seven miles out of Jerusalem. On that road, he encounters, he, 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 he encounters these guys. And he says to them, why are you guys so sad? Because they're really down, obviously. They're talking to each other, they're really blue. And he said, well, why are you so sad? And they turn to him and say, in effect, where have you been, fella? And they recount to him the events of the last few days, how they took the Lord and they crucified him and now his body is missing and they're all shook up. And it's interesting what he says to them. He doesn't say, hey guys, it's me. He doesn't say that. He says, wasn't that what Christ was supposed to, was supposed to happen to him? And then he gives them a seven-mile Bible study. He starts at Moses, goes through the prophets and the song. He goes through the Tanakh. Apparently, I don't think he's carrying scrolls. All these were well-versed enough they could do it from memory. But he recounts to them how all these things were the things that Christ... And he's speaking of them, to them in the third person. Christ, that guy. They're walking with him. right? These are two guys that will be in the upper room that night. They're not strangers, yet they don't recognize him. They walk seven miles with him, don't recognize him. Until they get to where they're going, and by then they're so entranced, they insist he stay for dinner. He was going to keep going. No, 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 no. You got to they, they insist he come for dinner. And they're sitting around having dinner, and Jesus breaks the bread. Now that's a violation of normal protocol. The guest doesn't do that. The host in a Jewish home breaks the bread, right? No, Jesus takes it and breaks it. And when he does, they realize who he is. And he disappears. <laughs> and they say to another, didn't our hearts burn with us on the way? But what's puzzling, what was it? They didn't recognize his face, but when he broke the bread, they realized who he was. What do you suppose it was? Right, exactly right. They saw the nail prints. In fact, they go to Jerusalem that night, and when they're mixing with the disciples, they explain what happened, and they recognized him, they say, in the breaking of the bread. Well, does something bother you? Why does it take the breaking of the bread? Why, didn't they recognize who he was? He's tangible. He'll say to them later, handle me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bone. He's tangible. Yet for some reason, they don't recognize him. In the upper room that night, they're all there behind locked doors, frightened, confused, feeling that they're probably wanted men. They're worried. And he shows up right in the middle of them. And he says, be not afraid. They're terrified. Be not afraid. And, uh, uh, and handle me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see me have. Well, there's a couple other things, but let's skip ahead to John 21. They're up. They're, they're all sort of frightened. Some days have gone by. Um, Peter says, I go fishing. You know, that's good therapy. You know, if you're under stress, one of the things you should do is indulge in something you're good at that's a change of scene. It may, it may be a game of handball or golf or, or just a good workout or whatever, but you do something that is unrelated that you're good at. That's a, that's, a, that's a normal, that's a good, healthy hygiene uh, from a stress. So Peter said, he's a fisherman. I go fishing. Yeah, we go too. So there's a group of them that go out on the Sea of Galilee all night long and catch zip. Nothing. In John 21, it records how in the morning, in the early mists of morning, they're, they're, they, they've struck out. Not a, not a thing. They see someone, on the, and I can understand, they can't tell who it is. There's somebody on the shore who says, hey guys, you catch anything? No. Put your net on the other side of the boat. 
<laughs> like that's going to make a difference, you know? But they do. And the net gets so full of fish, they can hardly handle it. And John connects the dots. That's the Lord. How does he know that? Because that happened once before earlier in the ministry. Same kind of thing, roughly. Well, John, right, that's the Lord. Peter, <laughs> lovable Peter, he drops his coat and dives in. He can't wait for them to pull it in. They're all struggling to get these fish in. But anyway, he gets, so they pull it in. And when they get there, and this is the part that's interesting, when they finally get there to the shore, Jesus has cooked breakfast for them. How many of you have had a biblical breakfast, had fish this morning? Huh? Fish and bread is what he had. He hit over the fire. He had a breakfast cooking. But there is a state, there's, when I get to heaven, there's a lot of things I probably want to do, but among the first things I want to do, I want to go to John and say, what on earth did you mean by verse 12 of the last chapter of your gospel? Because it puzzles me. Verse 12, Jesus said, come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord. What on earth does that sentence mean? That's one of those sentences that creates doubt rather than resolves it. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's assume you're driving to a social engagement an hour away from home, and you're halfway there, and you turn to your wife and say, did you turn off the stove? If she says, yes, I did, you keep driving. But what if she says, I'm sure I did? <laughs> what do you do with that? You know, it's one of those kinds of statements. It sort of creates doubt rather than... Who are, none of us dared ask him, who art thou? Because we knew it was him. Do you hear in this some kind of enigma lurking behind the scenes? Well, our whole premise in our ministry is that there are prophecies that are fulfilled and when they're fulfilled, fulfilled they're fulfilled precisely. And I'm going to suggest to you that there is a detail of the crucifixion First of all, I'm glad that Mel Gibson apparently didn't take advantage of in his movie, or it would have been even worse than to many than it was. There is a detail of the crucifixion that's prophesied in Isaiah that I believe was fulfilled that you don't find recorded in the Gospels. There are descriptions of the crucifixion in Psalm 22, many details, the vinegar and all the rest of it. Isaiah 53 is an eloquent summary of this. In fact, in Isaiah 52, verse 14, Isaiah 53 really starts a couple of verses before that chapter. You may recall when we went through it. But the last verse in chapter 52, before 53 starts, says, he was so beaten he no longer looked human. I mean, that's, that's as, as, as far as Mel Gibson went, that even goes perhaps a little further. But there's, and there's also a verse in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6 that I'll call to your attention. Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Apparently this verse by Isaiah indicates prophetically that they ripped off his beard. 
Now, that's vivid to me for a number of reasons. There was a time when I was in charge of a large company that had a very substantial software department. The head of that department happened to be a guy that had a very large, full black beard. That was just his style. And uh, one day, I came to work early, and he was coming down the hall. And I would not have recognized him. But fortunately, another employee said, hey, Joe, and got into a conversation. I picked up, that's Joe. I was so used to this big full beard. When it was gone, I wasn't prepared for the, the face that you saw. It was just a different shape than you think. and it was, He just looked so different. I would not have recognized him. And he didn't have scar tissue or any of that sort of stuff. What I'm beginning to suspect is the reason they didn't recognize him. Well, the reason that Mary didn't recognize him is she was used to seeing his beard. And there was scar tissue where the beard was. The reason that these two disciples on the Emmaus Road could go seven miles in a Bible study with him and not realize who it was until they saw the nail prints. Because they were looking, perhaps, at disfigurement, scar tissue, whatever, in lieu of the features that they were used to seeing during those years of training. That evening in the upper room, when they're so startled, it took them a while to handle me and see, you know, and so forth. And I suspect that's what's lingering in John's summary when he says, none of us dared ask him, who are you? Because we knew it was him. In other words, the other indications, his voice, his nail prints, overcame some other aspect that was, that was in the way. Uh, I'll t- one other thing I might mention to get this across perhaps. I'm told of a woman who had a little daughter, single mom, that had a very disfigured face. And she was so disfigured that the, little, the girls in school, when the little girl went to school, the, the kids in school made fun of her because of the disfigurement. You know, how, you know how cruel little kids can be sometimes. She often came home crying. When the girl, little girl became old enough, the mother explained to her that when, they, when she was a baby and they lived in an apartment, there was a fire, and she saved the baby's life, but at the cost of sustaining very severe uh, facial disfigurement. Well, from that day on, the little girl was no longer ashamed of her mother. Because every time she looked into her face, she knew how much she was loved. Now one of the things that I don't know the answer to, I don't know what it's going to be like to view the face of Christ. I do understand that he still bears the marks of his humiliation because they're the marks of his glory. But I don't know what it'll be like to look into his face. I don't know what we'll see. I do know we'll know how much we're loved. There's a passage in Zechariah 12.10. I think we touched on when I was in Zechariah, but let's look at it again. There's a passage there, it's often quoted, they shall look upon me whom they've pierced. This is a, an allusion to Jesus' return, his second coming, and they, the, the Israel, will look upon them, upon me whom they've pierced. When you look at that in the Hebrew, there are two letters that are not translated. They shall look upon me, the Aleph and the Tau. 
whom they've pierced. That's the, the Jewish equivalent of the Alpha and the Omega. The Aleph and the Tau, the Et, if it's linked with a Makef, it can be the indication of a direct object of a verb. It also has three other uses, about four different uses for that. It also can be an indefinite pronoun in the second person masculine singular, which I believe it is here. It's called a hypocatastasis in the Greek. It's a putting underneath. It's a hidden but declarative implied metaphor expressing a superlative degree of resemblance. And this also occurs in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth and so forth. Uh, if I look at the book of Revelation, we have that climactic event occurring in Revelation chapter 5 where John says, I beheld and lo in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood the Lamb as it had been slain. Not a lamb, as it's in your Bible, it's the lamb actually, but the point is, who is this? The Lamb of God. And uh, it seems to indicate that he will bear the marks of his glorification. I think we may spend an eternity trying to understand what it really cost him that we might be there in fellowship with him. Um, let's stand for a closing word of prayer let's bow our hearts Father in heaven we come before your throne acknowledging our unworthiness acknowledging our sin, sins of commission, sins of omission, sins of presumption, sins of ingratitude, more than we can number. And yet, Father, we come before your throne with gratitude for what you've done. We thank you for the extremes that you've gone to that we might live. We thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. We thank you, Father, for his enduring the shame, the pain, yes, and yes, the isolation from you that she endured on our behalf. We acknowledge, Father, that even an eternity may be inadequate to convey to us the price he paid. We recognize, God, that he didn't get a discount, that he paid for each of us and each of our individual sins of each of us, that we might live. Father, we just thank you. And we do pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit you would make ever more clear these extremes that you've gone to on our behalf. That you would open your word to our hearts and lives that we might more fully understand and apprehend our Savior, our Redeemer, and the lengths he went to for us. And we also thank you, Father, for the lengths you went to on our behalf. 
in providing your son that we might live. Father, we would ask that through your Holy Spirit you would help each of us to grow in grace, knowledge, and understanding. Help us, Father, as we live each day to recognize that we have the opportunity, if I can use that word, to add to his suffering on that cross as he stepped outside of time to pay for our eternity. Oh, Father, help us to be more effective stewards of these treasures you've given us. Help us, Father, to grow in grace and the knowledge of him. And help us, Father, to be more effective stewards of these things. As we commit ourselves without any reservations whatsoever into your hands, pleading the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you.